and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Professor Drew Dawson of the University of Miami School of Law and the Robert M. Zimmon Resident Scholar for the spring of 2017. Today I'll be talking with Professor Megan McDermott of the University of Wisconsin Law School about her research on Justice Scalia's bankruptcy jurisprudence. Prior to joining the Wisconsin Law Faculty, Megan litigated hundreds of intellectual property cases and appeals in private practice and as an assistant U.S. attorney in Denver and Madison. And she also founded the popular legal blog, Decision of the Day. Megan has written a law review article entitled Justice Scalia's Bankruptcy Jurisprudence, The Right Judicial Philosophy for the Modern Bankruptcy Code. A link to that article is available on the ABI website, along with the link to this podcast. Megan's paper is well-written and researched, and it is especially timely, given that at this moment the Senate is on the verge of filling Justice Scalia's vacant seat on the Supreme Court with Tenth Circuit Judge Neil Gorsuch, a judge whose own jurisprudence has been described at times as Scalia-like. So, Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. There's been a lot written, as you note in your paper, a lot written about Justice Scalia's jurisprudence, about his influence on the court, but not very much on his bankruptcy work. What led you to this project? Well, you point out something very striking, which is that there's been so much written about statutory interpretation and various approaches to it. And obviously, Justice Scalia's textualism is a real focal point for much of the academic debate. And very rarely do you see anything written about his bankruptcy decisions. And my sense is that that's really a huge omission for anybody who's studying statutory interpretation. Um, bankruptcy law basically creates, it's a fertile field for a lot of statutory interpretation questions. You have this extensive code. And most importantly, you don't have any intermediate forces that are tasked with interpreting that code. What do you mean by that, no intermediary forces? Well, what I mean is that typically, um, if, if you have legislation that has been delegated to an agency for interpretation, you have the Chevron doctrine that says we should defer to agency interpretations of particular statutes, whereas the bankruptcy code doesn't have any intermediate agency that's tasked with interpreting them. So when questions come up, the courts get to deal with these statutory interpretation questions in the first instance with the full range of interpretive tools available to them. In the criminal law context, you have doctrines like a criminal statute will be void for vagueness if it doesn't give proper notice as to what is going to be punished. And can you imagine if provisions of the bankruptcy code could be voided for vagueness? <laughs> there, there might not be much of a code left. So you don't have any of these forces that are going to channel the statutory interpretation questions. And as a result, it's really an opportunity to observe the Supreme Court and individual justices over time looking at provisions of the code and trying to apply some sort of clear and reasoned philosophy for how to interpret individual provisions. Well, and thinking about that and about Justice Scalia's bankruptcy opinions, um, what would you say, you know, what are people missing out when they overlook the, his bankruptcy opinions? That's a good question. I think you know, one, one reason I think bankruptcy is an interesting area to study is that we, it, first of all, it, it's a relatively modern law. We have the bankruptcy code, which was completely revamped in 1978, and we have, you know, a variety of smaller amendments, and then we have the major amendments um, in 2005, BAPSPA. 
And so basically, you know, since 1978, the Supreme Court has taken usually on average, you know, one to three cases a year. And most of those cases involve statutory interpretation questions. So it's an opportunity to see textualism in its purest form at work and be able to make decisions about whether textualism is a philosophy that can be applied in a principled, predictable, efficient, clear manner. Now, I wonder, too, to what extent you know we can get, when we look through the bankruptcy lens, Justice Scalia's jurisprudence through a bankruptcy lens, whether you can weed out some of the obvious politics that you know are often at the... Uh, lingering under the surface of all criticisms of Justice Scalia's textualism. Absolutely. That was one of the striking features as I as I went and looked through all of his writings in bankruptcy law was that there there was no political predictability to his rulings. I mean in particular his his dissents. He he often was dissenting on textualism grounds arguing that the majority's results, which often benefited large creditors over individual consumers. And he would dissent from those decisions, arguing that the majority's approach and result was just simply not consistent with the code. Um, and so there are a number of decisions that I identified, I think in particular the Doosnip decision, Doosnip versus Tim, the 19... 92 decision in which a majority of the Supreme Court held that 506D cannot be used to strip down a lien on real property to the current value of the property. Um, you know, and, and that's been one of the most maligned decisions in bankruptcy, or at least in modern bankruptcy uh, history. Um, in Ransom versus FIS card services, regarding whether a Chapter 13 debtor who owned a car but owned it outright would nonetheless be able to deduct applicable expenses that the IRS attributes to households that own one car. Again, Justice Scalia was alone in, in dissent, arguing that basically Congress intended to create bright-line rules, and when there are bright-line rules, we are going to have winners, and we're going to have losers, and it's okay for the consumer to win under this particular application of the code. So that was really striking to me to see you, you tend to have this conventional criticism that the conservative justices are there to use their tools in order to reach particular outcomes. You know, and, and, and obviously people argue that about the liberal justices as well. And what was really a striking feature to me of Justice Scalia's jurisprudence is that that did not come through in reviewing, you know, the 25 or so bankruptcy decisions in which he either authored the lead opinion or a concurrence or a dissent. It did not come through at all, and in fact quite the opposite. I think those are two really interesting cases. And as you, as you point out, right, the, he uses a textualist lens and comes to a result that would have been pro-consumer in favor of the individual. But both of those cases are dissents. And so part of your project, as I understand it, is that you're you know, looking not only at Justice Scalia's jurisprudence, but also on his influence on, on the court and on bankruptcy law. And so it's interesting that these came in dissent. He's sort of the lone voice out there saying, nope, 
it's textualism all the way, regardless of if this ends up being pro-creditor or pro-debtor. So what, how do we measure his influence when we tend to see that sort of result in the dissenting opinion? Right. I, in my paper, I describe his approach to textualism as almost Kantian. You know, Immanuel Kant said, do justice so the heavens may fall. And I describe his approach to at least the bankruptcy code as, I will do justice to the statutory text, though the commercial markets may fall. And, and I, I agree that it's fair to question whether that philosophy would hold if you were writing the majority opinion. But I think there are a couple of lead opinions that he authored that we can look to to see that same sense in which he's saying, look, this is... We're going to apply the text of the code. We're going to discern the intent of Congress as expressed through other provisions of the code that seemingly are not directly applicable to our fact situation. And we're going to come to a principled outcome. And I think there are two cases I'd like to point to in particular where he wrote a majority opinion that did exactly those things. Um, first of all, we have the Timbers case, which was actually his first bankruptcy decision that he authored in 1988. And Timbers was taken to answer the question of whether an undersecured lien holder is entitled to adequate protection payments, um, representing the use value of the collateral if the collateral is appreciating. But along the way, the Supreme Court addressed the question of whether an undersecured creditor in bankruptcy is entitled to post-petition interest at all. And what Justice Scalia does in that decision is he takes it, he, obviously this is a question that is not directly answered by the code, but he takes a, a very holistic approach, and he weaves together close to a half dozen seemingly disparate provisions of the code to try to explain what Congress's intent would have been for this precise question. And I describe this as a, a, a holistic version of textualism, where instead of looking to legislative history or looking to policy arguments about what the right result should be, instead he attempts to divine what Congress would have said by using the words that Congress did actually say in the statute. And Timbers has really gone down, you know, there were, uh, as Judge Markell has pointed out, there were billions of dollars at stake for the commercial lending industry. And Timbers has really gone down a very important critical decision um, for these cases for determining what um, undersecured creditors are entitled to in bankruptcy. Um, the other decision that I would point to as, as being very significant in terms of showing this almost Kantian textualism is the FCC versus Next Wave case. Um, this is the 2003 case involving uh, a bidder who had purchased FCC licenses at auction. And basically, after having put down billions of dollars or pledged to pay billions of dollars to win these FCC licenses, then filed for Chapter 11. Um, initially, Next Wave tried to write down the value of the licenses, but that did not fly. So then when they proposed how they were going to pay for their bid through the Chapter 11 plan, the FCC notified them that, no, in fact, we have canceled your licenses um, because, because you filed for bankruptcy. And by, by um, an 8-1 vote, the 
that the FCC had, in fact, violated the anti-discrimination provisions of 11 U.S.C. Section 525. Um, and, and I think this was a very sig- significant decision. Um, it was, it was um, Breyer wrote a very strenuous dissent saying that this application of 525 to these government licenses and to the government interests at stake is really going to hamper government activity in the future. But Justice Scalia was very clear um, that these provisions of 525 were intended to operate exactly this way and that the government couldn't make licensing or other regulatory decisions based on the fact that a debtor had filed for bankruptcy. And I think we think of this as a, a maybe maybe people would be tempted to think of this as a pro corporate decision because obviously next wave won mm-hmm. and next wave is a corporation. But that said, if we look at the everyday applications of Section 525, the the government plays a tremendous role in licensing all sorts of corporate and individual um, activity. And so consumers and businesses at all levels are going to be entitled to this protection and to, to, to the real teeth that um, Justice Scalia gave to Section 525. So I think those two examples illustrate that he wasn't just about applying these textualism principles in dissent. He was also doing it in majority opinions. To an extent, Justice Scalia's jurisprudence, if it does embody a policy, it seems to embody a policy of creating predictability in debtor-creditor relations. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. Um, he, he made that very clear um, in his um, decision in the 2012 Radlax case, where he said explicitly, hey, it's, it's our job to give clarity and predictability to this, this expansive and unruly code. Um, so he really saw it as important for the court to be applying clear principles, making clear decisions, and, and creating a framework in which lower courts could feel comfortable knowing how higher courts would rule on the same issues. Um, that was his vision, at least, for the bankruptcy code. But whether he actually succeeded in seeing that vision come to fruition is, a, is another question entirely. The other way in which Justice Scalia tried to bring predictability and clarity is in his decisions that tried to set clear rules for the scope of a bankruptcy judge's authority and power and ability to act. And one striking example of that is his decision in the Law versus Siegel case in 2014, um, which where he was the, the question before the court was whether a bankruptcy court could tax a debtor's homestead exemption in order to pay administrative expenses that were incurred as a result of extreme debtor misconduct. Mm-hmm. So there you had a case where a trustee had spent, I think, close to a half million dollars to try to track down the truth about a debtor who was claiming fraudulent, a fraudulent lien on his home in order to shield it from liquidation for the benefit of creditors. And the Ninth Circuit had followed its own precedent and said, yes, the debtor would normally be entitled to a homestead exemption of $75,000, but because of his extreme misconduct, we're going to take that money and give it to the trustee. And the Supreme Court unanimously said no. Um, A court's authority to sanction a debtor using its powers under 
uh, Section 105 of the Code or its inherent powers uh, does not allow a bankruptcy court to contravene the express provisions of the Code. And because exemptions are an express provision of the Code, what the court did here in taxing the debtor's homestead exemption was, was improper. And that this decision really cabined bankruptcy judges' equitable powers. Um, yet it was only seven years after the court had seemingly opened the floodgates to those powers in, in the Mara Ma case. So it was kind of an interesting turnabout. And what I find most fascinating about Law versus Siegel is it's very well-reasoned, but also it was a unanimous, unanimous opinion. Not a single judge said, well, wait a minute, we yeah. did something different seven years ago, and maybe we should kind of follow that line of argument a little bit further. What do you read into that? Do you think that it was the, the court itself sort of adjusting to the bankruptcy code, getting accustomed to the bankruptcy code, or is it maybe something more that could be attributed to Justice Scalia himself? That's really hard to say. I think, you know, comparing the situation in Marama versus the situation in Law versus Siegel, I think cl- clearly the, the, the debtor in Law versus Siegel was much more culpable than, mm-hmm. than the debtor in Marama. And I, I think the court in, in, in the Marama case convinced itself that the language was ambiguous and therefore it was okay to use 105 to contravene it, whereas it, it's a lot harder to get around that ambiguity in, when it comes to exemptions. And exemptions really are at the bedrock of the bankruptcy system and the fresh start for debtors. So I, I think it was really coming, taking a principle and realizing that carrying that principle too far was going to undermine the whole code itself. Well, I want to I shift a little bit and talk about Justice Scalia's bankruptcy jurisprudence and federalism. Because generally we think, you know, a lot of these bankruptcy cases, at least the ones we've talked about so far, there's not an obvious political valence to them. And as you point out, the textualism at some point will favor, you know, maybe corporations, sometimes individuals. But when we get to some of the federalism cases, we actually do see perhaps some tension in Justice Scalia's commitment to textualism and his concern about... Uh, the overreach of federal power. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and Till might be a good case, I think, to consider that. I'm sorry, which one? Oh, Till. Oh, Till. Okay, I was thinking of BFP versus Resolution Trust. <laughs> um, Let's do that. Uh, Let me hear. I would like to hear what you think about the uh, BFP. Right. Well, when you were talking about federalism, yeah. immediately, immediately BFP comes yeah. to mind because that's a case where I have a harder time being able to argue that Justice Scalia applied clear and straightforward principles of textualism to interpreting the bankruptcy code. So the question in BFP was, uh, it, it, involved, it involved a trustee's powers to avoid fraudulent transfers, you know, typically under Section 548. Mm-hmm. And the question there precisely is, can a trustee apply 548, use his powers under 548 to undo a non-collusive state law foreclosure sale. And this, this was a question that had divided the circuits, and they had taken a number of different approaches to how to handle this. So you have this, you know, this, these state foreclosure laws that allow um, home lenders to use state processes in order to get a judicially endorsed foreclosure sale. And often the price paid at these sales is much lower than the price that would be paid 
if the debtor were simply listing their home on the market, you know, for for a sale to, um, you know, a consensual sale. And so the circuits had come up with a number of different rules for how to deal with these, most famously the Durrett rule, which said that we're going to assume that the price paid at these auctions is reasonably equivalent value if it's at least 70% of what we think the market value would be. Um, and, and, and other circuits had come up with different approaches to that. Um, and this was a sharply divided decision by the Supreme Court. It was a five to four uh, decision. And the uh, majority, uh, in an opinion authored by Justice Scalia, held that, in fact, 548 did not apply to non-collusive sales conducted in accordance with state law. So that's a really strong federalism decision. Um, in, in, in what it ignores, as the dissent pointed out, is that 548 itself does not include any exception mm-hmm. for these state law foreclosure sales. Um, you know, and, and what Justice Scalia argued is that there was an ancient harmony between fraudulent transfer law and state foreclosure law, and that, you know, in, in part due to federalism concerns, the Supreme Court should not disrupt that ancient harmony. And I think that there's one case where it's really hard to be able to argue that he was applying the text of the code in a very principled way. But obviously there were other concerns, particularly federalism, as you point out, that played a greater role in that particular decision. It, it is an odd decision, right? It sounds almost very Justice Breyer-like in the concern for you know functioning of the system, sort of the functional analysis. And I might just use that sort of as a segue into the Supreme Court's recent decision in Jevick, the structured dismissal case authored by Justice Breyer. Yes, yes. This this was a, a really interesting case. You point out that Justice Breyer's uh, opinion looks an awful lot like a Scalia decision. It looks at various provisions of the code that don't have anything directly to do with the question mm-hmm. of a structured dismissal, but it says here, his opinion basically says here's Based on what Congress said about other aspects of the code, here's how what I think Congress would have said about this aspect. Um, and, and so it's very Scalia-like in that sense. And obviously it cites a number of Scalia's you know, landmark decisions, right. several of which we've mentioned today. The Timbers decision appears prominently. The Law versus Siegel decision appears prominently. And it, reading that decision really brought to mind um, a piece I read by Mark Tushnet a while back. He's one of the few non-bankruptcy scholars who has taken a close look at bankruptcy cases. Um, and and he, he, he looked at one of Justice Scalia's decisions and argued that if you didn't see who wrote it, you would think it was Justice Breyer. So perhaps <laughs> there's really no difference between Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer after all. <laughs> and I think, I think the Jevick decision kind of proves the converse of that. Here you have a decision that I think could, have been, could well have been written by Justice Scalia. It looks like a Scalia decision. It's reasoned like one. It cites to all of his decisions. Um, and yet it's written by Breyer. So is there any real difference between the court's leading textualist and the court's leading purposivist? And perhaps the answer is there isn't a lot of 
daylight between the two of them, at least when it comes to bankruptcy law. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, instead of projecting on how Justice Scalia would have ruled on Jevic, do you think it's possible to draw from Justice Scalia's opinions and look at some of what, uh, and try to envision what a Justice Gorsuch might look like for bankruptcy court jurisprudence? Do you think do you think he would just sort of fill in on Justice Scalia's Justice Scalia's seat and play that role, or um, do we have do we have enough to go on there? That that's a really good question. I think we have some evidence to go on, but we're we're limited by definition by the fact that Judge Gorsuch is a judge on the Tenth Circuit bound by existing Tenth Circuit precedent, bound by Supreme Court precedent, whereas when he gets on the Supreme Court, he's going to be bound, he's going to have fewer constraints in terms of how he approaches statutory interpretation questions. So it's difficult to look at his body of work now and say this is exactly what he will be like once he gets to the Supreme Court. But that said, there are a lot of parallels if you look at Judge Gorsuch's bankruptcy decisions and Justice Scalia's decisions. So, for one thing, I I do see the same holistic approach to the bankruptcy code. Judge Gorsuch seems to me to be someone who understands fundamentally how the code works and can weave together disparate provisions of the code to try to determine what Congress would have said based on the words that Congress did say. Um, And I think his his decision, his 2011 decision in the Inri Dawes case, which is at 652 F3D 1236, is is a really good example of that holistic approach to the code. Um, I also see in his decisions uh, the same concern that Justice Scalia had for clear rules to determine the scope of a bankruptcy judge's power and authority. Um, one example of that is Judge Gorsuch's decision in Henry Krauss, which is a 2011 case at 637 F3D 1160. And there he makes a really important argument. I don't know if it's correct or not, but an important argument about how prudential standing concepts need to be imported into bankruptcy law to, to make sure that courts are limiting who can appeal certain adverse rulings. Um, And and potentially it could be applied even more broadly to say that a creditor who wants to tank a plan shouldn't be able to raise the objections of another creditor Hmm. who actually wants to see that plan succeed. And I think that's going to be an important doctrine as, as, as we as bankruptcy law develops, and it's something that we might see coming from him if, if he does end up on the Supreme Court. Another really interesting thread that he picked up from Justice Scalia is um, in the Stern versus Marshall case, Justice Scalia wrote a concurrence arguing that uh, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts' um, multi-factored test for whether a bankruptcy court could rightfully, under Article Three, exercise exercise jurisdiction in a particular type of case. And Justice Scalia said there are way too many factors here. Mm-hmm. Very few of them actually derive from the text of Article 3. Let's have a simpler approach so that the parties and the courts can know clearly when they have the power to act and when they don't. And there's an interesting aside at the very end of his concurrence in Stern versus Marshall where he said where he says, "But by the way, 
I think there's a possible historical argument to be made that Article 3 should have a different understanding based on on the British system as it existed at the time uh, that Article 3 was put into the Constitution. And what's interesting about Judge Gorsuch is he picks up that invitation and in one of his decisions actually develops the argument for, for why the English system of summary and plenary jurisdiction should inform our understanding of Article 3. So he did that in the 2015 decision in INRI Renewable Energy Development Corporation, 792F3D1274. And it'll be interesting to see if that argument gets picked up if he does, in fact, end up um, on the Supreme Court. Um, and, and my prediction is that, you know, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas have already expressed some interest in that line of argument, and I think Judge Gorsuch might be able to convince Kennedy to go along with it and maybe one other. And I think bringing in that historical approach to bankruptcy jurisprudence is really going to clarify some of these difficult Article Three issues that have been plaguing the Supreme Court in lower courts now for several years, at least since Stern versus Marshall. So there might really be an opportunity for clarity there. Um, the one way in which I'd say he's different from Justice Scalia, potentially, is his approach to legislative history. Now, he, he's shown a lot of skepticism for the misuse of legislative history and the Inri Dodds case that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. the 2011 decision. Um, he, he expresses skepticism for, for improper arguments about legislative history, and he basically criticizes a party for, for picking and choosing legislative history that really is not meaningful in the context of the statute that was actually enacted. Um, but there are times when he does use legislative history, um, and he, he relies on it uncritically. Um, and, and I think this is very interesting because Justice Scalia went out of his way in most cases to really criticize any reliance on legislative history, particularly with respect to the bankruptcy code. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the ways in which he, he I think, is, is perhaps rightly criticized, at least when it comes to other, um, other statutes, maybe not the bankruptcy code. But many have criticized him for refusing to look at legislative history in most cases. Um, most recently, Victoria Nurse, in her book, Misreading Law, Misreading Democracy. And she argues that if used properly, legislative history is really critical to determining what Congress intended with particular statutes. Um, and I don't see Judge Gorsuch as being as absolute in terms of his refusal to look at legislative history as Justice Scalia was. And so one example... Um, in the 2008 decision of Henry Haberman, 516F3D1207, that's a bankruptcy case in which Judge Gorsuch did rely on legislative history in part to reach his conclusion, and he did it without any criticism whatsoever or any skepticism about whether or not legislative history should be relied on. So I do see him as, as differing significantly from Justice Scalia in that respect. Well, those are great insights and things that our listeners will want to keep an eye on if Judge Gorsuch does indeed get, a, uh, get confirmed to fill Justice Scalia's seat. Um, Megan, we're about out of time here. I just want to thank you again for joining us and sharing your insights with us. 
Great. Well, it was a pleasure to be here. And, and thanks to you, all our listeners, for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget we have an archive of past episodes on the ABI website. Until next time, this is Drew Dawson on behalf of ABI. Thanks for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. <laughs>